How are you guys doing tonight? Some of you guys might have uh, noticed out in front there's a little concrete. Uh, putting some more handicap, um, I was going to say handicap stickers, but they're not handicap, handicap parking. And so by tomorrow, people can probably park on it tomorrow, but not tonight. And so as we move along in our Old Testament studies, you can make your way over to Esther chapter 3 as we continue in this amazing story of God's providence. In other words, as I've been kind of looking at this and just thinking of God's providence, the, the, the fact that God foresaw this whole situation unfolding long before it ever happens. And it, it just kind of reminded me as I was kind of looking over it and just kind of examining <clears throat> all that's going on, because I think when I've been sharing with you, just this whole study has been already a trip for me. Um, because of the characters that are in it, because of all that's going on in it, the fact that, that again, God is, is never mentioned in this book. And at the same time, in this book, we see God's hand all over it. We see his fingerprints all over the place in this situation. And this situation is not the most ideal situation in somebody's life. But then again, how many of our lives have been ideal? <laughs> You know, there's always a twist, there's always a turn, there's always something that happens in our lives that we were not expecting, and once it happens, we often start thinking, God, why? Why would you allow that in my life? Why would you uh, let these things happen in my life? And and I think oftentimes, even, even though we're not always acknowledging Him in the way we should, um, He is always there, regardless. It's, it's not to say that we're not to acknowledge him because we should, and we should always try and desire to be right there with him, always talking to him. The Bible tells us that we are to acknowledge him in all our ways, and he shall direct our path. But even when we're not acknowledging him, he's always working. You know, as I was kind of thinking about this whole thing, I was thinking, you know, I tend to think that I am like God's favorite, you know. I, I know you guys probably think you might be, but you're not. I, I think that God is just waiting around with bated breath, just waiting to hear from me so that as soon as he hears from me, it's like, man, I'm on it, man. I'm jumping on it. I'm in action on your behalf, Zeke, because you are my favorite. And I just think like, man, Lord, that is amazing. But the fact of the matter is that even though I am his favorite, he is always at work, whether he hears from me or not. He is always at work. And again, that's not to say that we shouldn't talk to him, but whether I talk to him or not, He is already there. God never is not working. I know that's probably a double negative, triple negative, whatever it is, negative. But he is always at work. He is never not doing something. He is doing something in your life. And even in those dry spells, even in those most hard times of your life, there's something happening beyond beyond what we could ever imagine, beyond what we could ever think think. And the scripture that came to mind as we're going into this this portion 
was in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If you are his, one way or another, whatever is going on in your life, he is going to work it out for his purpose. That's just what he does. That's just who he is. He never wastes an opportunity, a trial, a hard time in our lives that he won't be able to be glorified in if we look to him to do that. And so tonight, as we continue in this tantalizing, fascinating, captivating story that is full of plotting and, and conspiracy and, and intrigue, um, that's the way a guy teaches this study. You know, it's like that. Girls, I, I, I've never been in a study when women teach Esther, but I just tend to think that you guys would probably romanticize it or something. Oh, for a time such as this. And that's all, your whole theme. It's like, mm, it's like, man, there's some crazy stuff going on that there's people that just want to kill each other, man. They're building gallows, and man, they're going to come after you, and they're going to make a decree to kill everybody, man. It's like, yeah, that's the way I look at it. And it's amazing because throughout that whole time, whether you want to romanticize the story or whether you want to just be, ah, yes, intrigue. Because there's a lot of it, you know. And again, however you read it, it's fine. Um, we've met a few characters already in this book. King Ahasuerus and Queen Vashti um, in the first chapter especially and going into the second chapter. But Queen Vashti is out of the picture because of her disobedience to the king. Um, again, she shouldn't have. But again, I understand she wasn't going to be parading herself around all these drunk fools. Um, and so I totally understand, but she's out. And then we met another, some other people in our last chapter, Mordecai and Esther. Esther and Mordecai were cousins, but I tend to think, and I will often call Mordecai her uncle because he just seems to be a little older because he takes her in and he, he teaches her and he raises her and he does all these things. So they're cousins, but he might be just a little older. And so last week we saw that Queen or Esther came on the scene, and by the end of the chapter she is now the queen because she found favor. Tonight we meet up with another character, and I call him character not in a great way. Um, his name is Haman. If you're not familiar with this story, um, Haman will be part of this whole chapter, or this whole story from here on out. And it's just amazing, all the stuff that goes on in here. And so let's read the first six verses. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates, bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you trespass the king's command? 
Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, uh, pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman uh, sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now, now we we kind of get into this little story here, and Haman is is now mentioned. The name Haman means magnificent, and he has now been promoted, advanced. He is now seated above everyone else. In other words, he is raised to a very magnificent position. More than likely, he is the prime minister of that whole kingdom, the Persian Empire. Now, it's interesting because, again, his name will be mentioned about 51 times in this book. Mordecai's name is is mentioned 58 times. So these two guys are mentioned the whole time. So these guys are the main characters of this whole thing. And they are they are polar opposites, as we will see that that this this thing just escalates and begins to to escalate here. Now, it's believed by many that that Haman really did not deserve this high position, Um, that that in in some ways that he kind of bought this position, if you will. We'll see that, that again, the guy um, seems to have the wherewithal to do stuff like that because we never hear from him in the first few chapters. But now we've gone into this place and it seems that, that again, now this guy is being promoted. And so some believe that he didn't deserve this. Now also some believe that he was a short man. And that he suffered from short man syndrome as well, which is very prominent in guys under 5'5", five five, not 5'6", five just 5'5 five five and below. Um, if you're 5'5", if you're five five, sorry, but I'm 5'6". <laughs> so anyways, be that as it may. Some believe that, that he, because you're going to see a lot of this, this guy, just the clashing. And, 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 and again, this is what happens when people are elevated to high positions and they're short in some ways, that, that it just kind of gets to them that all of a sudden they kind of compensate for who they are and they're being put in these positions, especially if he bought his way there, especially if he really has no business being there, but now he is next to the king and this man and he is, he is going to be something else. If you know the story, you know how it ends, but I don't want to ruin it for most of you guys that don't know the story. But it does tell us here, and I'm going to spend some time with Haman here because I think it's important to understand where this cat is coming from. But it tells us here that Haman was an Agagite, uh, which could mean that he came from a district in the empire known as Ag- uh, Agag. Um, but more than likely, it means that he was a descendant 
of Agag, king of the Amalekites, according to 1 Samuel chapter 15. You can read about King Agag at that time, but he is an Amalekite. Now, if, it, if that is the case, and again, most commentators believe that he is, and it's interesting because you're going, well, wait a minute, why would the king of Persia bring somebody in that's not Persian? Well, we've already seen that he's, he doesn't mind bringing in other people. He doesn't know that his current wife is Jewish, but it wasn't above other kingdoms doing stuff like that because we see that in Daniel, Daniel came before this story, and we see that Daniel is promoted to, to some high um, offices, and, and we see that with Joseph, and we see, we see that throughout in, in, in many of the places. And so here, this guy, if indeed he is an Amalekite, they call him one that is from, uh, that's uh, Agagite, but it stems from being an Amalekite. And so I lean in that direction that that's who this guy is. And so it, it, it can now be easy for us to understand why Haman will hate these Jewish people. I'll give you a little background. Back, even going back all the way to Exodus, uh, God had declared war on the Amalekites. And he, and, and he wanted their name and their memory blotted out from the face of the earth. Because when you go back to Exodus chapter 17, when the children of Israel were traveling through the, uh, the wilderness, the, the, the Amalekites had, had kind of attacked them when they were in a low point. Instead of coming to their aid, instead of just holding back, they came after them. And they came after them not in the front, but they came in the rear. And they, 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 they came through the, through the rear channels over here and came after the weak the stragglers, the people that, that, that didn't have the strength. They came in in that area to try to defeat them. Now, at that time, Moses commanded Joshua to go and fight against them. And so there was this, this fight that happened. And, and when Moses was, you know, had his arms up, they were winning and blah, blah, and all that stuff. But, but God had already um, declared war on them because of how they came and attacked his people. And so God told Moses, to write in the book in Deuteronomy that he had declared war on these guys and that one day he would utterly destroy them because of what they had done to his people. And Moses reminded the, the Israelites, the children of, of Israel, about the Amalekites and how they, they were just evil in what they did before they entered into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, it says this, Remember that Amalek, uh, Amalek did, did to you on the way when you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at the rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore... It shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of uh, Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. 
And so again, there's that tension that has gone on for all these years. Well, they never got rid of the Amalekites the way they were supposed to get rid of them. So when Israel gets their first king, King Saul, whom God had commanded at one point to destroy the Amalekites, every last one of them, not only the men, but the women, the children, the animals, everything. They were to obliterate them. They were to destroy them. They were to get rid of them. And you can read that story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But he didn't, if you remember the story. He, he held on to King Agag. He held on to him instead of killing him. And he let others leave. And he didn't utterly destroy them the way he should have. And so because of that, King Saul loses his crown. And it's an interesting thing to note as well, that at the end of Saul's life, when he was dying, it says that he got, he got hurt and he was dying and he asked his, his, his uh, sword bearer to, to come and kill him because he didn't want the Amalekites to take him. And it would be an Amalekite who would run to the people to say, I was the one that killed Saul, uh, King Saul. Even though he didn't, the Amalekites took the, 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 the responsibility for killing him in the battlefield in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So because Saul did not fully obey the Lord, some Amalekites continued to live and God had been wanting to destroy them. And one of their descendants, more than likely, is this man, Hanan, Haman. Uh, Haman. I'm going to get that guy's name wrong. More than likely, he is a descendant of the Amalekites. And he will be determined as we read on, to annihilate God's people because of their long past that they have had. He despises the Jews. And again, for all this time, Malachi, or not Malachi, yeah, Malachi, Mordecai. Man, there's going to be way too many names here. So again, let me just tell you guys, if I mispronounce Haman and call him anything else, it's Haman. If I call him Malachi, it's Mordecai. Just so you guys know that. Because you guys go, you mispronounce it. It's like whatever. So you know, again, that's what's going on. Now, it's worth noting also that King Saul was a Benjamite. And we learned last week that Mordecai was also a Benjamite. So it's almost like this story is being relived once again where this Benjamite Saul should have killed the Amalekites and he didn't. And now Mordecai is on the scene and he's a Benjamite and there's another Amalekite on the scene and now what's going to happen, right? And so now all of this is, is coming to fruition and stuff. And so an, another thing to note is the fact that the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. And Esau was the brother of Jacob. And Jacob and Esau hated each other for the longest time. And so again, there's a lot of intrigue here. There's a lot of stuff involved in this whole story because they've been fighting forever. And it just kind of you know, reminds me of the conflicts that go on between the flesh and the spirit, Satan and the Lord, um, the way of the uh, of 
faith and the way of the world. So you see these little similarities as we'll be going through this portion. Everything about Haman, everything that we learn about him, everything that we talk about him, this man is a hateful kind of guy. There is like not one good thing talked about this guy. Maybe that he has money, but not even that, you know? He, he is just despicable. He is just one of those people that you're just going, there is nothing praiseworthy about this cat. And, and now he is in this high position that, that now people have to bow down to him. And it's interesting because this man is full of a lot of things that God truly hates. And the Proverbs tell us this. And it's interesting because as one commentator said, every little thing that we see in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, we see in Haman. And it says in Proverbs 6, uh, verses 16 through 19, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discourse among the brethren. And all of these seven characteristics are this man, Haman. If, if, you know, like some people say, if you, if, if you just looked up that verse, you would see Haman's name there. That's who you see when you read Proverbs chapter 6. That is that man because he is so depraved and so despicable and he just despises the things of God and we will see that as it unfolds here. And so it says that all the king's servants who are now, who are within the king's gates, they bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king commanded concerning him, but Mordecai, would not bow, bow or pay homage to this man. Again, this man Haman is in great authority. He has great authority given to him. And it wasn't out of the ordinary to, to bow to somebody in high authority. And I'm not talking about prostrating yourself all the way down, but if they're in your vicinity, you would bow and pay them respect. Almost like a respect, not a worship type thing, but you would bow almost like you would to a king, but maybe not as low. I don't know. But this guy is like the prime minister. He is the right-hand man of the king. And so it wasn't out of the ordinary that people did that, especially if you worked within the king's gates. If, if you worked within the king's gates, that means you were some kind of a, a worker for the king. That means that you were doing something. And last week we found out that Mordecai, he had been pacing back and forth, wondering what's going to happen to Esther. Now that she is queen, he is now within the king's gates. So that means that now he has a position within the king's administration somehow, not probably high up, but down here. But he is there none, nonetheless. And so it wasn't like he had to worship anybody by any means. But this man, Haman, is second in command. Now, whether the king just tells everybody, hey, you do this, or Haman was the one that said, hey, king, I'm right next to you. I need some respect. And I want all these people bowing down to me every time I pass by. And so maybe that's why the command went out. 
But it's interesting because Jeremiah the prophet had told the children of Israel before they were taken captive in Jeremiah 24, 7, or 4 through 7. And he says, when you are taken captive, then you obey the laws, then you, you, you become a good citizen, you do what you're supposed to do. If, if, if there's any way you can have peace, then have peace with everybody there. Again, we see that that's what they were commanded to do. It's interesting because when you read about Daniel and being taken into captivity, there were certain things that he was not going to do, beginning with the foods and things like that. And so he, he kind of kept it on the down low. It wasn't something that he was um, out there overtly in, uh, making sure everybody saw that. It wasn't until later that there were certain things that, that he wasn't going to hide. And so we see that Daniel, he took a stand for certain things. But when it came down to bowing down to, to the image, that was plain worship. It wasn't being courteous. It wasn't being respectful. They were saying, you need to worship. And that's why Daniel would take a stand in certain ways. Well, here, Mordecai says that he would not even pay respects to this guy, Haman. He's not being asked to bow down. And again, it wouldn't seem out of the ordinary if he had to. But he is not complying with the king's command. You just didn't live <laughs> if you disobeyed the king's command, unless you're the queen. Um, other than that, man, you, you, you just didn't disobey a law like that. But it's interesting that Mordecai is now within the king's gates, which means that he works for the king. And in a sense, he is also working for Haman because Haman is the prime minister and his co-workers, they are tripping out on the fact that he is, is transgressing against the king's command. And that's how they come across to him because I'm sure he had this decent reputation, if not a stellar reputation. But when it came to this guy, Haman, this guy all of a sudden is being defiant. For some reason, these guys, his co-workers, the people that are within him, they're going, what's up with that, man? Why are you defying the king's command? And it really doesn't give us a great explanation here, but could it be, is there a possibility that Mordecai was maybe just a little put out, maybe? Maybe a little upset? Given the fact that Haman has been promoted put in this high place, and, and we finished last week's chapter with the fact that Mordecai saved the king's life and not a peep from the king. And, and, and it's quite possible that he might be thinking, this is not fair. What did Haman do but buy his way into the situation more than likely? I saved the king's life and he has not even acknowledged me. Now, we read that his name was written down in, in these annals, in these chronicles. And, 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 and the king knew the guy's name. But here, in this situation, he is still a, 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 a regular worker. And this guy's been brought up into this high position. And so it could be, there's a possibility that maybe, perhaps, he might be a little upset because he didn't get promoted. But more than likely, I throw that out just because of the intrigue. But more than likely, even though Mordecai was not living like a Jew in the sense that 
He wasn't keeping the law the way he should. We, we, we studied that last week. He wasn't adhering to a lot of the festivals. He wasn't doing a lot of the, these things, so much so that people did not know that he was Jewish, nor did they know that Queen Esther was Jewish. So they, they were Jewish, but they just kind of kept it on the down low. They weren't outward about it. And so it's kind of interesting here that all of a sudden, there's something going on, even though he hadn't been living this outward religious life, but he knows that Haman is an Agagite. He knows that he is probably one of the last of the Mohicans and or the Amalekites. He knows that. And, and is it possible? Is there a probability? Could it be? that now he's going, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a stand now. And I don't know if you've ever been in those situations where you just feel like, oh, I don't want to be this outward Christian. I'll just kind of, kind of just go right under the radar. And there comes a time in your life when something happens and, and you can't hold it down anymore. And it's about time to at least step up and say, I don't do that no more. I, I, I'm not going to continue to do that anymore. Where people start tripping, going, what the heck, man? Yesterday you were doing it. And it's like, let me tell you what happened in my life, you know? That, that all of a sudden, you know, the conviction fell upon you. And all of a sudden, you're, ta you're, you're taking a stand for what you knew was right all along. And again, you have to look at Mordecai's life and go, dude, you know that you have been a Jew. You know that you have been separated, that you're one of God's people. But for all this life, all this time living in Persia, you've never let anybody know who you really are. As a matter of fact, we were learning last week that he was telling Esther, don't you even tell anybody who you are and who our people are. But now it's time to take a stand even if it costs him big time, maybe even his life. He is willing now to go against the command of the king and expose himself for who he really is. And guys, when you come to that place in your life where all of a sudden your Christianity, even in the United States, can cost you something, that's hardcore. When all of a sudden you're going to stand for righteousness. And I, I, I tell people, when people go, oh man, here in the United States, man, there's no persecution. And I often tell people, you stand up for righteousness. You stand up against abortion. You stand up against same-sex marriage. You stand up against certain things that God detests. And you will feel the persecution. You will feel the trials and the hot arrows coming at you. Because once you start standing for those things, it might cost you and might cost you dearly. And so all of a sudden, this man decides that he will expose himself and become civilly disobedient in that sense. That he is not going to do what the king has told them to do. And it's interesting because he probably doesn't realize that it's going to affect a lot more people than just himself. That's a scary thing. When you start realizing, if I take a stand, it's not just going to affect me. It's going to affect the people around me. And that's a hardcore decision that we need to make and I think we should always make. 
that we should prepare our families, those around us, that when we stand, these things will probably happen in our lives. <laughs> and as the times approach to, to where we're living in these last days and it's getting worse and worse as we're studying on Sunday morning, as the time approaches for, for Jesus to come back, it's going to get worse and worse and we will have to stand for righteousness. And yet it won't affect you only. And that's where Mordecai is at at this time. He is beginning to take a stand. He has now let them know that he is a Jew. And it tells us that this was going on day after day, that his co-worker were coming to him. It says in verse 4, and it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen because they're coming at him going, dude, this is going to cost you big time. Again, I don't know if they know that, that, that Queen Esther is his cousin, but they're saying, this is going to cost you. And so they're coming at him time and time again. And when he did not listen, <laughs> it seems that as it continued for a while, they decided that maybe Haman would be interested in this. And I just kind of think like, man, these bunch of little babies. It's like, is it hurting you? Is it hurting you that this guy's not bowing down? Wait until they, get, they find out. But they're going, no, we're going to go tell Haman, man. See if, see if anything happens here. <laughs> and as I was thinking about that, I was just thinking, man, isn't it great when, when ignorance is bliss and you don't know what's go going on sometimes? When, when, when you don't know that people are actually saying something or that, that, that things are going on and you're just going about your day and nothing's happening and stuff and then somebody finds out or, 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 or they make it known to you that so-and-so hates you. Or they make it known to you that all of a sudden, you know, somebody's, you know, perturbed with whatever's going on or, or something has happened and all of a sudden, man, it is just living in your brain and you can't get it out. It messes your devotions up for a week, two weeks, man. Because every time you read, you're thinking, there's that situation again. There's that situation again. And all of a sudden, man, people and, and situations are living in your head rent-free, right? And it, it, and it just seems like, like, like this guy, Haman, he, he was just happy that everybody's bowing down to him. Now, you've you got to understand, those who were working within the king's gates, they were always bugging Haman. They'd bow down, hey, Haman, tell the king this. Hey, Haman, tell... There was always people there. And for all this time, whatever the time limit or the time frame was that, that Haman was in power, that Mordecai was not bowing down to him, he never even noticed it. He did not notice that there's a guy, Mordecai, who's not bowing down. And so to him, man, he is just so happy-go-lucky. He, he has the prime job. He has everything going for him. And then these guys come, and all of a sudden they tell him, hey, have you checked out that guy Mordecai? You know who he is. He doesn't bow down when you pass by. And all of a sudden, man, it just ruins his day. And all the position and all the money and all the prestige that he has, man, all of a sudden, man, it tells us that he was filled with wrath. <laughs> and you could imagine the next time he goes out, Mordecai is sticking out like a sore thumb. It's like, there's that guy, man. 
And day after day, that guy is just getting more and more mad because that guy won't bend, you know, bend over. He won't, he won't bow down or he won't, he won't show him respect. And he's, this guy is just sticking out like a sore thumb. And man, this guy is just pretty, pretty upset because he is being disrespected. But it's interesting because I'm sure that they told him, oh, and by the way, he's also Jewish. And so in verse 6, it says that he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. This just triggered something huge in him. And it's quite possible that his background being from the Amalekites kicked in as well, going, I hate those guys. I hate those guys with a passion. And I know all of them didn't go home to Jerusalem. And there's still some going, uh, floating around here. And, and, and throughout all this kingdom, the 127 provinces, I know there's Jews everywhere. And so his heart, his mind is, I will annihilate all of them. I won't just go after Mordecai. I'm going to go after all of them. Can you imagine what Mordecai is feeling at this point? Going, oh my goodness. Again, man, he's taking a stand. And now everybody's in danger, not just him, not just his family. The whole race is now in danger. These guys were sworn enemies from hundreds of years. And now this man who is in charge, over, second over this entire kingdom, this entire empire, he has the, the, the power to do this, to go after them. And in verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, on the twelfth, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast her, that is a lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now, this is, this is an interesting time here, and I just kind of want to focus a little bit on, on this time frame here. What we have here is it says that it was on the first month in the month of Nisan, Nisan, which would be April, May. And it is the year 474 B.C. Queen Esther became queen in 479 B.C. So four years have passed since the last chapter till now. There's been four years that Malik, uh, Mordecai has been working there. Still, nobody knows that he is a Jew until right about now. And it is about that time that all of a sudden, all of this is going to come to a head. Twelve years after, the reign, after his reign, at that time, they decide that now they have to do something about it. Now that Haman knows exactly what's going on, he is consulting with all the other leaders, and they're planning the destruction of the Jews here. Now, it's interesting because it is around this time 
of March, April, the Jews, whether it's Mordecai and his family or not, but the most of the Jews are preparing for the Passover if they're if they're celebrating the Passover. But it is a time that they are remembering the deliverance of God out of Egypt. And all of a sudden, now all of this is coming about, whether they know about it or not, but there's plans behind the scene to annihilate them, to get rid of them. And so they began to cast pur, it says, P-U-R's. And, 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 and it's that, that, that word pur is the basis for the name of the Feast of Purim, which we will see in chapter 9. But the, the, the Feast of Purim would be the day that they would have annihilated the people of Israel, all of them. And so they cast these lots, and it fell on the 12th month, which would be February, March of the following year. And it would fall on March 7th. 740, no, 4473 BC. That would be the day around that time that these people would be annihilated because the decree will go out throughout all the kingdom and they would all die on that day. And it's interesting because God has given his people just about a year to prepare for this. In Proverbs 16, 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so, again, this is like throwing dice. And you're going, man, this is all by chance. And it's like, nah, even God has his hand on a lot of those things. And I know what some of you guys are thinking. Baby needs a new pair of shoes, God. Come on, man. You know that. You already know what I'm thinking right here, God. You know that I need that truck. You know, come on, Lord. No, that's not. <laughs> but all of a sudden, all of this is coming to pass. And these guys, and it's interesting because that whole Feast of Purim, it's an interesting time because the Jews, <clears throat> to this day, still celebrate it around that time in March. Uh, I, I don't know if the, the, the day's change. But in that time of Purim, it's interesting because the book of Esther is read on that day, on the Feast of Purim, every year. And it's interesting because every time Haman's name is, is, is pronounced or is, is said 51 times, people stomp their foot and they, and they yell, may his name be blotted out. And it says, some say, and they hiss. So I understand that if we say Haman and you go, I know what you're saying. I know what you're doing. <laughs> One of the brothers I was talking to, he says, man, you should just teach it how they do in, in Sunday school. When they say Mordecai, they yell, yes. And when they say Haman, they go, boo, and stuff like that. So let's not do that. But, but it's kind of interesting that that's what they did because they still read this book and they, to this day, hiss at Haman's name because he is such an evil man and he just hates the people of God. And it would have been on that Feast of Purim that all the Jews would have been annihilated in, in that year of 473 B.C. And so in, in verse 8, it says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There are a certain 
people. There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the province of your kingdom. Your law, their laws are different from all the other peoples and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. Haman, he has to, he has to plot out this plan before anything happens. He has to go and prepare all of these plans to have the date, to have everything ready so that the king will give him permission for all of this. And so again, as Proverbs 16, um, 16, uh, 6, 16 to, to 19 says, that he is going to shed innocent blood. He will devise wicked plans. He will run to, to do evil. He will do all these things. He will speak lies because he goes before the king. He says, king, there's the people out there. And he never even mentions them by name. He never tells them who they are. All of a sudden, he just lets them know that there are people out there that are willing to, to disobey you. And it, the fact of the matter was that not all of them were doing that. Mordecai was. But now he's blaming all of them. And so he is slandering all of these people. He's falsely accusing the Jews of disobeying the king's laws. And they were not all doing that. And he suggests to them that, that you would be better off if all of these people were gone. They're scattered throughout your whole empire, and so we need to exterminate them. And Haman said he himself was willing to bear the cost. And it's interesting because, again, either Haman was very, very wealthy when he came in, and that's why some believe that he bought his way in, or he was really, really crooked as well and found his, his way in there. He, again, he's one of the highest officials, and he's getting paid good, but not that good. And, and, and to be able to offer, to pay for this whole thing, 10,000 talents, um, it would be millions and millions of dollars today. And he's saying, I am willing to put up the money. I will pay everybody to take care of this. That's how much hatred this guy has. And so he is willing to, to do that. And I wonder if the, if the king is probably suspicious going, man, where'd you come from? Where'd you have all this money? But also, if he didn't have all the money, we're going to see that they are going to plunder all these Jews and take everything they've got. And that's probably maybe how he will take care of this as well. And so the king, interestingly enough, he says, no, keep your money. The money is there. You do what seems right to you. And so the king allows the enemy of the Jews to call the shots and proclaim this, this decree that he, would, that he would allow him 
to destroy these people. And he takes off this signet ring. And the signet ring was this big old ring that, that again, it was, it was almost like a little branding thing, but it would go on clay or, or wax that you would just put your, your name. It was like your signature. And so he gives them the signature, basically, to take care of everything. And it's interesting because the king does not know what all is going on. And Proverbs 18, 13 says, A man who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. And he does not realize that his new lovely wife is a Jew, and she will be affected by this, but he is allowing it to happen, to go forth for all of this to happen. And so you see that this plot just continues to thicken. And it says in verse 12, Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps to the governors who were over each province to the officials of all people to every province province according to its script and to every people in their language in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. In one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published before all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel, so the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. And so, again, as this all begins to unfold, he gets everybody together. It's this big old signing party, and he is just stamping and stamping and stamping because they have this courier set up. That again, like I shared last week, it would be like the Pony Express that was very, very effective to reach this these 227 provinces, that they would get, get it out there in no time. And so now all of this is beginning to take shape. And, and it's interesting because as he is doing all of these things, verse 13, it says that the letters were sent out by courier to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews. And isn't that interesting? It sounds very much like, like when Jesus was talking about Satan. That, that, he is, that, that he's just there to kill, steal, and destroy. That's all that he's there. And so you see the correlation of this wickedness of this man who, who has now come on the scene, that he wants to destroy every Jew. And again, the proclamation is now going out. And within a year, if God does not act, these guys would be dead. And it's interesting because we're talking about the Messiah here. <laughs> we're talking about the Jews that this man is, is, is putting this out there to destroy every last one of them, just like God had said, I will destroy you, Haman, or, or the Amalekites. And now this battle is on. 
which is interesting because as he was signing everything, every, every document that was going on, what he did not realize is that he was sent, signing his own death sentence, as we shall see not too long from now. But it's interesting because he's so cold and callous that once this thing goes out, this, this proclamation goes out, it says that he and the king just sat down and started drinking. Again, it's like, man, I'm sure he was so happy. He was so upset that this guy would not bow down, but this brought some satisfaction to him that he would now destroy not only him, but all of the people. And when he sat down to drink, to drink, there was a satisfaction in him that he has done a good thing. And it's interesting because everybody was tripping out. Even, even the city that they were in, in Shushan, it says that they were perplexed. They were, they were mind-boggled. It's like, how could this happen? Why would this happen? People were living in peace. Things were going just fine. And I could, I could almost guarantee that the other people that had brought, been brought in from other countries that, that, they, that, that they had taken over were probably thinking, well, if they're going to go after the Jewish people, then maybe my people will be next. And so I'm sure it just brought a lot of confusion into this whole scenario. And so, again, this, this book is just an amazing thing that we can see the good and the evil. We, we, we see that God is still at work because, again, He is allowing all these things to take place. And, and, and as much as Haman thinks that this throwing of the dice is like, man, we got the date, we got everything, what he does not realize is that the God, the, the God of the universe, the sovereign God is behind all of it. God is still on the throne he is not being shaken because of what's going on in this story. Even though, again, you're going, man, this doesn't look good for these guys. Well, read ahead and you'll see what the rest of the story looks like. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for, again, reminding us of your faithfulness, oh God. Thank you, oh Lord God, that you are faithful. That, Lord, everything works together for the good for those who are the called according to your purpose, those who love you, Lord. Father, again, Lord God, we don't quite comprehend when things are going on, when all of a sudden, Lord God, there's things that are coming against us that are beyond our control because of maybe somebody else or something else that all of a sudden, Lord God, we are in the throes of, of destruction and, and despair. And yet, Lord God, we, we know from your word that you are still at work. Lord, even when these people were casting these, these lots, Lord God, you were the one that was directing all that. Lord, you didn't allow it to, to, to happen that next week, Lord. You gave these people time. And Lord, even through all of that, Lord, we see your mercy and your grace that you would spare your people, Lord. And so, Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. I pray, God, that you would remind us, Lord, that no matter what's going on in our lives, Lord, you still sit on that throne. You still see it all, Lord, and you, you hear it all. Lord, when, when others come against us, Lord, you're already on the move taking care of those situations, Lord. I pray that, God, we would desire to be closer to you, to do what is right, Lord. Lord, I know that there's, there's a, a part of, of Haman in all of us, Lord God, that we can all be evil. But, Lord, I pray that, God, we would be more like Mordecai and stand up finally for what is right and desire to do what is pure 
and righteous, Lord. Give us that, that strength that we need daily, Lord, as your people. Help us to stand, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.